Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today, we'll be speaking with Robert M. Pearl, MD, who is with us to discuss healthcare in the 21st century, a topic he presented on as part of the plenary session during the 41st Critical Care Congress. Pearl is the executive director and CEO of the Permanente Medical Group in California and the president and CEO of the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group in Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland. Dr. Pearl, thank you for joining us today on Eye Critical Care. I, I really enjoyed the presentation you gave at the, the SCCM this year. One of the things I thought was really fascinating, you, you said something that just kind of resonated when you say that we're on a non-sustainable path. Yeah, I, mean, I think as you look at the challenges, first there's the uh, state of American health care, which I think we're like a patient in denial. Uh, we don't realize uh, either how bloated we are or how uh, sick we are. And then I think uh, the question is health care reform, is it a solution or a... Uh, uh, aggravator, and the answer is yes. Uh, and then uh, the answer is then around information technology in the 21st century, and really, uh, where, where are the big opportunities uh, to go forward? And I think the big opportunities are big. So let me ask you, where do you see the, the overall state of American health as we are right now in 2012? I begin, as you pointed out, that the costs are uh, unsustainable, that we will have Increased healthcare expenditure year over year at about a seven to eight percent range, with GDP going up about three to four percent. That uh, in that context, uh, healthcare becomes doubles as a percent of GDP every 20 years, and went from four and a half to nine to 18, and it can't go to 36 percent without uh, having no police, fire, education, infrastructure. Uh, so it, it can't happen. So something will have to change as a consequence of that. Second of all, I think that we just have to accept that our health outcomes, for all the correcting factors still being included, are not particularly good in terms of our outcomes. We rank in the lower half of the uh, 20 most industrialized nations in the world, uh, whether it's childhood mortality you want to look at or length of life. And uh, third of all, and I think it ties into the first and the second, is that we have a structure that resembles a 19th century cottage industry. Uh, it wasn't adequate for the 20th century, but it's particularly not adequate for the 21st century. It's fragmented, so the parts don't work together. It's uh, fee-for-service, which is at the delivery system level, which is basically piecemeal. It's still predominantly paper-based, even though there may be computers doing claims and billing, and there's no leadership structure. So when I put that all together, I can't see that the state of American health, that American medicine is particularly healthy. So you say it's fragmented and it's paper-based. For those of us in intensive care units, it's always frustrating when we have somebody who has a long chronic medical history and then they end up coming into the ICU and we don't know anything about them. And, you know, we have our situation here at Vanderbilt is, is that we're right next to our VA and if somebody falls over on the patio, we can't even get as much as an EKG uh, simply because we're all siloed and fragmented. Exactly. You don't know what medicines they're on. Uh, you don't know the associated diseases they have. You can't tell their EKG. You can't tell their chest X-ray. Uh, all, all the parts of comparison that everyone knows is going to increase quality is simply not available. And you may remember in my talk, I spoke about the fact when you go to South America and you put a card into an ATM machine, it knows exactly how much money you have in your bank accounts in the United States and gives you money in local currency. And yet, as you say, going from the VA to the... Uh, uh, university Hospital across the street, the information can take a day and a half. If it's Saturday night, it's Monday before the information gets there. 
Now, $19 billion were allocated out of that $19 billion. Where are we at in, in developing that kind of ATM style, you know, rapid medical access? Well, I'm not as much of an expert on where we are nationally. I know certainly within my organization where we are, I know where some of the competitors uh, might be today. But there's two or three different fundamental problems that lead me to worry that we're actually not going to solve this, at least not solve it in a timely fashion. The first is you need a lot of agreements on uh, interconnectivity of the devices. And everyone's invested in their devices. So it's not just a question of buying new equipment. They already have a system in place that works in their office. If you want to use the classic terminology, legacy systems. And now you're going to try to bring them together. That's a, tr- a very complex set of agreements and understandings that sit in play. And then number two, you can't do it just because the doctors working in your medical office building want to do it. You still need the pharmacies, the laboratories, the radiologic suites. Uh, so there's multiple levels of complexity that sit above simply the uh, acquisition of uh, computers. And certainly people are pushing towards that with the um, requirements around uh, the government reimbursement for uh, meaningful use. But I think the gap between where we are as a country we have to get to is large. People have tried putting it in the cloud. There's a lack of uh, confidence in how that data is going to be utilized. And I personally think there's going to have to be another technological breakthrough to actually get across the uh, chasm that exists today. So as it is today, we don't have any standards for health information technology. Everybody creates their own system, and those systems don't talk to each other between hospitals, and a lot of systems, as you point out, don't talk to each other within the same hospital. Exactly, and it's more than that, because if you think about what a specialty tries to do, it tries to develop a system that meets its needs uniquely. Uh, and the next specialty does the same, and by the time you're all done, you have a bunch of systems, each of which designed to maximize a particular specialty, but not to work across the entire entity. I mean, we in Kaiser Permanente had this experience. We tried to develop our own set of systems back in the 1990s, and we ended up purchasing a uh, very plain vanilla system. It's a very good system, but a plain vanilla system from Epic because we recognized that what was most important was connectivity across specialties, across outpatient, inpatient. Uh, I sometimes joke that in Kaiser Permanente today, I want to create a museum because we don't have any paper records. We don't have any acetate x-rays. But that's the exception to the rule. I can't think of very many others if there are others of our, of our scale and scope who have been able to solve that interconnectivity challenge. The, the Health Care Reform Act, is that going to make a big difference, or is it just going to push you know, a bunch of, you know, as you say, cottage indi- industry providers into, a various, uh, into various silos of different types of platforms of different standards, you know, different commercial software? Uh, I'm not sure that the uh, health care reform is going to move technology one way or the other. I think uh, the, uh, the bill itself, the really good thing that it does is it provides care to 34 million more Americans who don't have it today, which since we know that the number one predictor of health outcomes is health coverage, that's going to be uh, particularly good. At the same time, we have the Massachusetts experience, which is that when people have health care coverage, they actually get health care. And that in the end, although there's always the story about the patient who goes to the ED who could have been seen in the primary care physician's office, for the most part, people without insurance don't get care at all. So that will create a uh, competing force uh, against the, um, uh, the potential value 
of the preventive services that will get done. But built into the health care reform bill itself, I think, are a set of opportunities that could help address some of these issues. The Accountable Care Organization being a good example that theoretically brings together a group of physicians and hospitals where the sum of the parts is better for everyone than each person individually trying to maximize their own segment, as would traditionally exist in a fragmented fee-for-service world. I think there's a comparative effectiveness research uh, program that's going to look at some of the uh, opportunities to compare the uh, different approaches and the different efficacies of different treatments that theoretically could provide at least some uh, potentially positive insights. And then the health care exchanges, although, as you know, they're going to vary from state to state, uh, the opportunity to use the health care exchanges as a means of having true competition as people have to list up not only parallel equivalent products so that one can compare cost, but also include the quality and the service uh, experience so that individuals truly can have a level of transparency in a theoretical basis that they don't have today. And if those exchanges expand, and there's no reason to suppose they shouldn't, I mean, think about it now. If you want to buy a plane ticket, you go to Expedia or Kayak, and you actually can view all the different airlines. And you can decide whether you want nonstop or whether you want to be willing to stop for a lower price. And you can decide whether you uh, have to fly on Thursday or whether you can wait till Saturday. And out of all of that, you can pick the best choice that works for you at a far lower transactional cost than it would have been if you had to uh, hire someone to do that type of work for you. So all those things are going to lead to potentially a very different world, but none of them will happen automatically on their own. How do you see, you were saying before we started recording that, you know, you've done uh, burn surgery and I do burn surgery. These are patients who are very expensive um, and have a very high mortality rate and often are very socioeconomically challenged, uninsured. How do you see people who work in that world of, of caring for high acuity patients who have a low payer class? Is healthcare reform a positive thing or a good thing? Positive in that patients will now have access to resources they didn't have in the past, or negative that there may be constraints on resources and, and the, the limits of what we can do to help patients or what we should do to help patients? So specific to the underserved or underfunded population right now, I think healthcare reform will be positive. I think it will provide uh, coverage to individuals who today might be uninsured, and it will provide uh, coverage for people who often go in and out of coverage, sometimes into Medicaid, sometimes into uninsured, sometimes they have a job, they may be seasonal. And I think having that continuity of information, particularly if it's associated with a consistent record, uh, that's going to be very uh, positive. You know, I'm a big believer, Jeff, that we have to improve the performance of healthcare, uh, and that before I want to even contemplate the possibility of denying needed care to individuals, I want to make sure that we as physicians, as healthcare leaders, have put in place the most efficient and effective systems of care. So you, you raise the issue as an example of burn units, and that uh, probably varies around the uh, nation, but I use as an example cardiovascular surgical units. So I live in Silicon Valley. San Jose and San Francisco is separated by about 50 miles. There are 10 heart surgery programs across 50 miles. They're averaging about one to two patients a day. There's uh, three or four of them that average under one patient a day. I question whether one can achieve excellent quality 
but I have no doubt, because I teach at the Stanford Business School, that when you look at a business model, you can't come up with a model that's, that's going to be cost-effective when some days you have zero patients, some days one, some days two, some days three. And so I would say that what we have to do to make sure that we take the dollars that we have, the percent of the gross domestic product that we apply to healthcare, is we have an imperative, a moral imperative as well as a business imperative, to be able to be assured that the systems of care are as efficient and effective as, as possible. And you and I both know that today that's simply not the case. Uh, when we talk about competing on quality, uh, that certainly brings up some unintended consequences of people gaming and cheating the system. How do we get around people who, who do that just in order to get better quality benchmarks? Well, I'm not sure that it's cheating to get better quality benchmarks if you actually did the things. Correct. I mean, we say that you need that women need to have a mammogram. Uh, we should define how often that's going to be. And if people are going to put in place systems to actually accomplish that, we're going to save lives because women are not going to die from breast cancer. Uh, colon cancer, we know, is a disease that probably we could lower the mortality in half if we did the proper screening of patients in a logical sequence so that we do the test that is most uh, has the lowest complications associated with it and the one that also happens to be the least expensive on a general population, and we apply the positive results out of that to much more sophisticated uh, uh, technology uh, that, um, that, that's, that sits in play. Uh, another example I use in Kaiser Permanente is that if every insured person, not the uninsured, just the insured person in this country, got the same care that we provide today inside Kaiser Permanente, to be 200,000 fewer heart attacks and strokes every year. That would have a massive positive impact on quality, on the patient and the family, and it would have a very positive impact on cost. What it wouldn't have a very positive impact on is the incomes of some hospitals and actually some physicians, because if they're paid 100 times more for treating a heart attack than preventing it in the first place, where is the alignment and the incentive for them to do the right thing on behalf of the patient? That's the challenge we have in this uh, fragmented fee-for-service type system. We're not able to make sure we have the information at every point of contact to assure that the right thing is done, whether you're seeing primary care or specialty care, and we don't have the right financial incentives to assure that people make the investments necessary in prevention when they're personally going to gain more by treating the, treating the disease when it happens rather than avoiding it in the first place. So based on what you're saying, bringing all of those three points, we need the health, in, the health information technology to track, report, give patients transparency to their medical records to improve access and to improve quality. We need the health information technology basically so that we can produce our quality data and then pivot into the idea of accountable care organizations. Absolutely. And, and I think there's another whole part, which is the use of the Internet. So we tend to think about health information technology because we're physicians simply in terms of care delivery, whether it's in the medical office or in the hospital. But there's a whole level of, um, well, first services, you know, None of us would go to a travel agent to pick up a paper ticket today, but what do we expect patients to do? Come to our office to get the printed immunization forms if, the child's, if your child's going to go to kindergarten. None of us would expect uh, to be able to uh, not have access to uh, data on a real-time basis uh, on financial performance, and yet if you want to know your clinical results, you have to call your doctor's office. 
Uh, if you want to schedule an airplane flight, you can go online and do it at your convenience. But if you want to schedule a doctor's office visit, you got to call Monday to Friday between 9 and 5. Uh, every one of us sends a ton of email around. It's very much... It's much more efficient and it's uh, more timely, and yet very few physicians. It's a whole range of online tools that people, that services that we simply don't offer in healthcare today because we don't offer it. There's no good reason not to do it. We just don't. The rest of the world has passed us by. And I think increasingly in the future, Jeff, the opportunity is video. I mean, think about it. Today, you run an ICU, uh, you, you send people home from a hospital sicker than we used to admit them. They came in on one day, they were on seven medications. They go home another day on eight medications, but three of them are different medications and two of the dosages are changed. And they go home either by themselves or with their 85-year-old spouse, maybe with a kid who stops in once a day. Video would allow us to connect with them in the home. Technology would allow us to make sure they take the right medications at the right time. Uh, and I'm not even talking about sophisticated monitoring. I'm just talking about the ability to um, see a patient and have some sense of how well they're doing. I Sometimes I have friends who have young children. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. The child has 104 fever. What do they do? Do they go to the ED? Do they wait till the morning? Do they give Tylenol? Every pediatrician will say if they could see the kid for two minutes, one, one kid is limp with a stiff neck, bring him in right now. The next kid is running his bicycle around, give him some Tylenol and call me back in the morning. That ability to provide that care when it's most convenient to our patients, and not necessarily every physician, an integrated structure, and this is where an accountable care organization starts to work, can now provide services across a broad range of uh, patients and um, the covering of physicians' practices, that ability to use 21st century technology to solve the problems of the 21st century, that's what I favor very much, and I think a lot of the other approaches that are being talked about are simply ones that are going to uh, triage they're going to limit care or re reallocate care, and I believe we simply can provide a lot more care without a whole lot more dollars if we use 21st century technology to accomplish it. So there's probably a lot of people that are listening to this that think, you know, here are these two guys saying that in the United States that we're behind when it comes to information technology, and I, I just want to make sure that we're clear about this. You're, you are um, of the opinion that the United States has the best Medical technology would be MRIs, functional CTs, portable CAT scans, ventilators, what have you, that we are on the cutting edge of that. But when it comes to information technology, which is something different from the medical technology, you're saying we're basically in the 19th century. We're using papers and tablets and mail and, and the like, and that we could improve access, speed, and the quality of data by being, say, more like the banking industry. Exactly. And I think what we've done is we've overestimated the impact of medical technology, and we have dramatically, maybe by a factor of 10 or 20 or 30, underestimated the power of information technology to be able to provide better quality, more convenient, personalized service, and do it in far more efficient and effective ways. So if the United States is lagging in this, who is leading in this? Well, I'm not sure that anyone is leading because most of the world today is on the same 7 to 8% uh, cost trajectory as we are. The reason the rest of the world is achieving better quality outcomes than we are is not specific to the technology. It really is the um, investment that they've made in primary care against the investment they've made in specialty care, the investment they've made in uh, broad screening and preventive services over high-end uh, 
uh, very expensive technology designed to uh, treat a single patient rather than treating hundreds or thousands of patients. So the healthcare systems are better in other parts of the world, but I don't think anyone right now has is using technology anywhere in this world in the ways that it could get done. I'm hoping as the CEO of Kaiser Permanente that we're going to lead the way, and I know others are thinking the same way across this country. So who are the barriers to the adoption of this technology? So it goes back to the same four things I said before. Integration, uh, collaboration, however you want to phrase integration. Um, you can have the world's greatest computer system, but if it doesn't connect with anyone else, you can't connect with primary care and cardiology and pulmonology and all the other groups in your facility or your community, uh, then it's, it's good. It's better than nothing, but it's nowhere as good as it could be. Uh, the technology is nowhere as good as it could be if everyone is integrated together. Everyone can be integrated together, but if there's no technology, the information is slow to be communicated. If uh, care is paid at a fee-for-service level inside the delivery system, then your incentive is just to do more and more and more things rather than asking yourself in advance, how do I put in place better systems of care so I can solve all the patient's problems in one visit rather than having three visits. And then I'll say maybe most importantly of all, we do not have a leadership structure that's then capable of bringing people together, implementing technology, and um, moving to a different financial reimbursement system. I mean, try to ask yourself, in Vanderbilt at least you have a dean or you have a department chair, but in the typical community, if change were to happen, who's responsible? Who's the accountable individual to whom the physicians have given a degree of ability to make, I'll say, wise investments in capital and systems and technology? There's no one. And so it's a combination of all four of those pieces that, to me, make a change difficult. Individuals always resist change. You're a leader. I'm a leader. We know this every single day. It's human nature. None of us like change because we're afraid. Uh, none of us like change because we're comfortable with what we've been doing in the past. I think people understand change is needed, but right now they don't have a confidence that if they try to change, they're going to actually get to a better place. They're actually very concerned right now that they'll give up their to a hospital or to an insurance company, that they'll spend a lot of money on a technology, that they'll have a lot of agreements, and in the end they're actually not going to be able to give care even as good as today, and they will have spent a lot of money doing that. So looking at this from the, the patient side or the consumer side, uh, Google Health, uh, that, that uh, became dysfunctional, or they, they, they pulled the plug on that. The, the Microsoft was at Health Vault. I don't know if that's getting a lot of ground. Why hasn't there not been a lot of uh, momentum on this front on the consumer side or in the commercial sector? So I, I'd say two, two parts, Jeff. The first one is, in terms of the examples you used, I don't think the consumer trusts a uh, publicly traded company uh, to have all the medical information available. I don't think they're comfortable with all their data being sitting in the cloud and others having access to it. Uh, so I think that that, for the most part, is why uh, Google Health and, uh, some, and, the, and the Yahoo, uh, I'm sorry, the Microsoft uh, uh, process have not been as successful. I actually believe there are ways, I think, I think where it will evolve to is patients will have their medical information on their own tablets, on their own iPads, uh, or some other device, and they actually would be very desirous of that. It just doesn't yet exist someone will create it uh, going forward. So I think that's, a, that's the, um, uh, 
the biggest challenge for consumers. I think the question to me, though, is why don't they demand the kind of functionality in healthcare that they demand in the rest of their life? They never fly in an airplane that require that paper ticket. And all I can come up with on that one is they don't think they have a choice. They look around the community and no doctor is doing it. I think the physician that was able to offer this kind of electronic connectivity would actually do exceedingly well and would draw the whole nation forward. Again, that's what we're trying to do in Kaiser Permanente, is we're trying to make available to our members the ability to access the medical information 24 by 7, the ability to communicate with a physician using a video 24 by 7. I think those kinds of things will uh, end up uh, pulling the marketplace I tell the story about um, an individual, I have to leave the company blank, but it's a very large company, a member of the board of directors that just joined Kaiser Permanente, and he joined, he was gay, he, you know, when he talks about his personal physician, he means his personal physician, he's the only patient the doctor has, the doctor's available to him 24 by 7. When he goes to the local university center, the red carpet's rolled out because he's a big dollar donator, and they know he's going to... Uh, contribute to the capital campaign. And he just joined Kaiser Permanente, and uh, we asked him why. And not, not that it was a bad decision, but why if you have your own personal physician and you have this university that's rolling out the red carpet. And he said, I can't get, even for my own personal physician, the level of convenience that is built into the electronic medical record, built into the Internet functionality that you provide. When I go to the ED for my personal physician's office, yeah, they can send a runner to the office to carry the records there, but you already have it, and you already have the uh, health care prompts, and you already have the ability for me to email 24 by 7, and my doctor has to sleep sometime. That ability to have a system of care that is simply far more convenient. I don't have to drive different locations and get it all solved at once. I think that there will be a poll by people who want that in their life. They just right now look around and say, I can't find it very many places. It seems like a lot of institutions, you know, Kaiser Permanente being one as far as a leader in, in healthcare information technology, other universities are, are developing similar systems and, and other commercial entities. They're going in different directions. They're, they're making good products. At what point are we going to have to reconcile? And what if a patient, a, a Kaiser patient, is, is visiting the East Coast and they go into a large university hospital and you guys have a, what, a thumb drive that has information on, on it for your, your, your patients? Right. Today, we, for $5, we'll give a patient an, an encrypted uh, thumb drive for, that has the medical information that will work on any computer in the world assuming that the patient gives the password to the individual providing the care. I think we're going to see more interconnectivity. And it's not that I don't think it's important because I do travel like yourself. And if I should find myself in New York City with some chest pain, I have my thumb drive with me at all times. It has my EKG and my chest X-ray and my medications and things like that. Uh, not that I'm on very many, but it has the things that I'm, that I'm, that I'm taking. Uh, but the, um, I think the biggest issue is even in the day-to-day care just in the community that they serve. They may never leave a town, and yet the primary care doctor, the specialist, the outpatient, the inpatient, the pharmacies, the laboratory, none of that is connected together. So I think the travel is, it's not that it's not important, but 90% of the improvement will happen if every community could be fully coordinated so that at least the people who live there getting care in that community would know that it didn't matter where they went. Every physician would have the information, Every uh, hospital would have the information, and that it would come out of all of the pharmacies and the radiology offices 
and the laboratory. We're so far away from that. I think that that's the first hurdle that we have to get over. It's interesting you were talking about transparency. You've probably seen on television Domino's Pizza has an app you can get on your iPhone and, and see transparency of who's making your pizza, where it's at in the stage, and when you can expect arrival. But yet we, we lack similar transparency when it comes to critical elements of our healthcare, laboratory data, x-rays, things along those lines. You have to make an appointment or sit in front of a provider. Uh, but in, in your world, there's, there's greater transparency for access of that vital medical information? Right. So we have two iPhone apps right now. Uh, one iPhone app allows the patient to get to their, uh, I don't want to say their full medical record because there is still a part, which is with the note that the doctor wrote that the patient doesn't yet get to, but they get to the laboratory, the pharmacy, the radiology, the EKG. Uh, so they can get to a lot of the record uh, sitting in play off the iPhone app. And similarly, we have what's called the prevention app, which allows them not only to be able to find out the care that they need, uh, see the, the um, appointments that are coming up and the physicians they'll be seeing as part of that, but allows us now to push out to them information. So we can let them know when the pollen count goes up in California so they start the, uh, or increase the dose of their corticosteroid if they have uh, asthma. Uh, we can allow them to uh, understand um, uh, exercising they should be doing as they move from an athletic season to another. And we actually can customize that based upon the uh, particular medical conditions of the patient. So that all is coming out pretty fast uh, for organizations, you say, like ours and some of the uh, academic centers. I think the challenge is that the rest of the country is not only behind, but it's falling even further behind. I read an article in the New England Journal of Medicine that said it takes 17 years for a physician and community practice to incorporate the most recent advances in, uh, in health care. And if you do the math, that means that uh, the typical physician is in 1995. Wow. 1995, there is no iPhone, there is no iPad, there is no uh, Google, there is no uh, Facebook. All the things that we take for granted now in society simply don't exist. And I think that that view may not be wrong. I think that in many ways the experience of the patient getting care in most of the communities of the United States is that of 1995, not 2012. With, the, with Medicare changing reimbursement regarding patient satisfaction, how is Kaiser Permanente strategizing? Uh, obviously, you've got you know great flow of information. Uh, I'm sure you have metrics on how that improves both patient and family satisfaction by having rapid access to that kind of information. So another part of healthcare reform, as you're describing, is the Medicare stars, and I think that actually may turn out in the longest of runs to be the most powerful part of the Medicare program because it really is the first time, well, it's not true, it's the second time that the government is going from simply reimbursing volume to actually reimbursing outcomes, both higher quality and greater uh, satisfaction for patients. It did a little bit of that when they put in place the DRG. The DRG at least neutralized the idea of I can get paid a lot more for creating complications, uh, but at least it allowed the, um, but this is the first time that they really have had a positive incentive for organizations that focus on the quality and the service. And for us in Kaiser Permanente, uh, we are the uh, in the very top echelon, the five-star type of programs, because our quality scores are nation-leading. We're number one in Consumer Reports, as an example, and our service scores are very uh, high in places like J.D. Power & Associates. So for us, 
it validates, I think, the work that we've done. Again, not because our doctors are any better. We have great doctors. There are great doctors around us. It's the systems. It's how care is provided to patients. So if you call up on the phone and you want to be seen, there is no authorization process. You see a physician. We make sure there's enough appointments every day to see you today. You know we're coming today. We'll see you tomorrow. You can't do that, again, from a business school concept or a math concept with an N of one. If you're a single doctor working in an office, all you can do is figure out how can I get through today. As soon as you put together groups of physicians working together as one, now you're able to say to the patient, when would you like to come in? You can see Dr. Smith or Dr. Jones today and uh, Dr. Uh, you know, Hawthorne tomorrow. We have lots of opportunities for you to come in, and we can balance all that out in a way that you as a patient drive the decisions about access rather than us trying to create a backlog and let you through when our capacity develops for us. So it fits into the idea of integration. The fact that we have the medical information tells us what it would be inappropriate to see a particular physician because you need to see a different one. The fact that it is prepaid at the delivery system level allows us to say, if I'm available today, I'll see the patient, and if you're available today, you'll see the patient. And finally, there's a leadership structure to make sure that it all works smoothly and in a connected type way. So it all fits together. It fits under Medicare, uh, Medicare's drive to the future, and as I say, particularly being able to reward higher quality and better service over higher volume and uh, not equivalent quality or service. How does it work for a patient who's in the intensive care unit and you know is unable to provide their own consent? You're dealing with surrogate decision makers. Uh, what opportunities have you created to to allow, say, a surrogate decision maker to get greater access? I mean, clearly there's there's HIPAA issues um, and security issues. Um, how does that compare to say a, a traditional intensive care unit? Sure. So I, I would start with the fact that by the time you get to the intensive care unit, it's too late to ask the question. Uh, I personally believe that everyone in the United States should have made a decision about who's going to make these determinations when they can't. Why is that? Because every one of us could be in a car wreck tonight. As you know, you take care of people like that who are totally healthy 10 minutes early. There was no way to predict that something really bad would happen, and all of a sudden you're in the intensive care unit. It's like having a will. If you have a, you know, certainly if you have any children, you better have a will because something terrible could happen. I hope not. It's a rare event. So I start with that. Having started with all of that, I think there's a bunch of patients whose likelihood of ending up in the ICU increased in magnitude. And now you have to have a much bigger conversation with them. And by the way, all this information as the decisions are being made get embedded into the electronic medical record. So by the time you hit the intensive care unit, the doctors taking care of you not only have your medical information, but they know what you would like to have happen, how aggressive you'd like them to be how you feel about uh, some of the very uh, uh, sophisticated technology that's available that you may or may not want for yourself, and they know exactly who you would like to have delegated, and that process has not been random. There actually has been some type of, hopefully, conversation, but at least communication around that occurring. So it's a totally different situation, but you have to start long before the ICU. You have to start in the outpatient area. You have to start 10, 20, 30 years earlier in life, and then you have to identify progressively through registries and other ways those individuals who have the highest chance. They have heart failure. They've been in the ICU twice before. They're likely coming back. They have pulmonary failure. They're likely coming back. They have um, other associated conditions or multiple conditions. They're likely to be coming back. 
and having a prospective look. In many ways, if I think about one of the reasons why I so enjoy practicing in Kaiser Permanente, is that what we're able to do is to take a prospective look to look at a broad population of people and ask ourselves simply, how would we want to be treated if we were the patient, and then put that in place in advance. If I'm working in a typical community, I can maybe do it for my segment of patients, but I can't do it across the population, and I certainly can't do it if it requires coordination with others. It's just a very different way, and then I become simply reactive. It's actually interesting, because as a critical care physician, looking at the difference between the diseases that people have today in the United States and what they had in 1960s when Medicare went in place. 1960s, you went to a hospital because you had appendicitis, because you had pneumonia, or you had a heart attack. And by the way, if you had a heart attack, the treatment was bed rest. So now you're taking people who are very acute episodes who basically are pretty healthy, and once they get sick, they have a very short life expectancy. So today, when most of the people that you treat in the ICU, they don't have one disease, they have three, four, or five diseases. And they haven't had it for six months or 12 months. They've often had it for a couple of years. And so that opportunity to understand that as the, system, as the patient's biology and uh, diseases get more complex, we certainly need very different systems and different technology than we had 50 years ago. And, it, and it's certainly at a systems level and at an information technology level, we're not particularly more advanced in the typical hospital of the United States today than we were 50 years ago when Medicare went in place. Is there anything that um, um, that I failed to mention that you want to, to present? No, I, th- I think you've done a really good job of, of scoping out the fact that we're on a path that's not going that has something has to change. Yes, and I think the only part maybe that we haven't talked about very much is um, that if we're not able to reform the systems, not able to put in place modern technology, not able to create a leadership structure and make our care much more efficient and effective, the only alternative that this nation will do is we'll move to a uh, two-tier, or we can even say a three-tier system of medicine. That if you have enough money, you'll be able to get high-quality care, get access to uh, the most modern of medical technology and the most sophisticated of care. As you become less wealthy, the middle class, all of a sudden will start looking like Medicaid today. They'll have coverage, but they won't be able to get access, whether to the physicians, whether to the elective parts of the care delivery system, whether to the most sophisticated technology. Now, we're already seeing the most common insurance product sold in the United States today, I'm told, is a $10,000 deductible. If you have a $10,000 deductible program and you don't have a whole lot of money, most of the time you simply don't get care. You can't afford three or four or $5,000 of care. You may not be able to afford the preventive care if it happens to be part of the uh, deductible process itself. And so I think what physicians across this country have to understand is this is not a theoretical problem. They will get this problem one way or the other. They'll either get it because they now have had to change how they practice to make their care higher quality, more personalized service, but also more efficient and effective, or they'll get it because patients will be walking to their office that they know need care, and they simply can't provide it. And then we will be back to the ICU or the burn unit as the end stage. But we'll be sitting there as clinicians saying, you know, we really could have handled this better. We really could have avoided this in the first place. 
and I think that we will feel disappointed and we'll say we wish we could go back. And when that's the case and you're looking forward, it says this is the time to actually make the change, which I believe it is for our country and for American medicine today. Well, thank you very much. I have it's kind of a loaded question. You don't have to answer it if you you don't choose not to. I was just wondering it's it's more on a business school vein, but do you think patients do they really value quality healthcare or do they is more of their value on convenience? I think they value quality care, but they often can't discern it. And so they often therefore view quality through the lens of, of convenience. Perfect. Yeah, I understand. That's that's a that's a great answer, and I, I would agree with that. Well, Dr. Pearl, I, I really appreciate you spending so much time with me. I know you're a very busy um, person in, in all of your both uh, your clinical duties as well as your huge administrative duties, and, and we appreciate your contribution to SCCM. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Members receive discounts on all SCCM educational programs and resources. Please ask to speak to a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC, is editor of the iCritical Care Podcasts. He is an associate professor of surgery and director of the Regional Burn Center and Acute Operative Services at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. At Vanderbilt, he co-directs a medical student immersion course on critical care physiology, a program he helped develop. He also established a sustainment training program for U.S. combat medics. His clinical practice is focused on critical care, pediatric and adult burn surgery, and emergency general surgery. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.